Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the new anti-flipping tax. It was outlined yesterday by Premier David Eby. This one is aimed at people using the real estate market like a stock market, buy a house, buy a condo, flip it for profit. Government bringing the tax hammer down here. Got Paul Sullivan standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to Eby here. Here he is speaking yesterday. Families should not be competing with investors for a place to live. We need to give folks a leg up in the real estate market if they're looking for a place to live for themselves and their family. And that's exactly what the flipping tax does. If you are buying a property to sell it within two years, you will pay extra tax. This makes the economics more challenging for flippers and it gives families an advantage over those who are buying homes for the exclusive purpose of selling it again for profit. Okay, watch out. If you're thinking of flipping a property here, a tax man coming to get you. Let's discuss it now with Paul Sullivan. Paul is a property agent partner, Ryan ULC. It's a global tax consulting and software company. Paul is a real estate analyst, and I'm always grateful for his time. Paul, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, good morning to you, Paul. This anti-flipping tax, will this make any flipping difference here? What do you think? <laughs> well, I, I just can't flipping believe it, Mike. Like This is crazy. <laughs> You know, um, no, well, you know, not even the premier believes it's going to make a difference, nor any of his left wing uh, consultants have, have, have said it's going to make a difference in the marketplace. And, you know, we just got to recap where we're at on these taxes. We've got underused housing tax. We've got speculation and vacancy tax. We've got empty home tax. We've got additional school tax. We've got foreign buyers tax, additional property transfer tax, foreign buyer ban, federal flipping tax from 2022, and now a provincial flipping tax. These are all our new taxes. It's flipping amazing. So how has this made housing at all affordable? You know, get projects started, you need financing. Financing requires a minimum level of pre-sales. If we continue to demonize people in this marketplace, being foreigners and investors that are a portion of the market that buys condos or homes to make projects move forward, we're just going to make these projects less viable and produce fewer houses. And before you start demonizing investors, don't forget that these investors are the ones that put homes on the market as rental. So this intervention into the market hasn't worked, isn't working, and we need to change direction. Yeah, it doesn't seem like we're, we've are we been able to tax our way out of this thing so far. I think we need to build more stuff for people to match our population growth. The numbers are not working here. I want to get into that with you. But let me ask you about the whole idea of flipping property here. Is, is that... Is that as lucrative as it seems? Like, you watch some of these TV shows on the Home and Garden Network sometimes, you know? And it's like, you see all these people just, they'll buy some rundown home, fix it up a little bit, get a hand, if you're handy, turn it around, make a big profit. I'm sitting on my couch at home watching this sometimes. I'm like, what kind of a chump am I? I'm sitting here, I could be getting rich here, flipping properties. It, like, is it that mm-hmm. easy? 
it's not that easy, Mike. And, you know, this is a very, very small portion of the market in the first place. And I know a lot of young families that get into the market. They work their ass off. They they put in their basement suites and they try to create value added through sweat equity. They sacrifice on on other things they can do in life to invest in their homes so they can make a lift and they can move up the property ladder. So no way is Canada ever being a strong market for flippers generally, but the ability for families to move through the marketplace by, by working hard and sacrificing is being removed with this new tax. Okay, let's talk about some of the exemptions here. This sounds like it's, uh, I don't know, it seems a little complicated to me because this 20% tax on a flip profit would kick in if you sell the place within a year one of owning it. So 20% tax, but there are exemptions. If you get divorced or separated or you suffer some terrible illness that forces you to have to sell your home or you have to you get a new job you got to move out of the home then you can apply for an exemption what how is that going to work here now it sounds like uh we're going to need some new branch of government here some new bureaucracy policing this how is this going to work well well mike you know we we've created you heard my list of taxes we've created a lot of tax revenue here and we have a job growth ratio of 15 to 1 in British Columbia. That's versus a 1 to 1 in the rest of Canada. That means 15 government jobs for every private sector job. And so, yeah, we've got this government saying we're going to raise $40 million. Well, we're going to also lose $20 million in property transfer tax. And then we're going to build a new bureaucracy. You know, we can't afford to keep funding bureaucracy through taxing our housing. A third of the cost of housing is taxation and government charges. They're the problem. Move aside, remove your taxes, and let's start working on affordability issues. Speaking of Paul Sullivan here about the new anti-flipping tax, another one of the exemptions is if you turn a single-family home into a, a multiplex or you buy a duplex and turn it into a, a triplex or you put in a, a basement suite in a home. So the government's saying, we want this. We want to densify. We want these multiplex homes so if you do that and then you turn around and sell the place, you'd be exempt from this uh, flipping tax. Listen, listen to David Eby on this point, then I'll get your thoughts. It's going to support seniors who are housing rich and income poor because they're going to be able to create new units and sell them or rent them out. It's going to support families to get into uh, single-family neighborhoods where kids trick-or-treating disappeared a long time ago. Uh, and there are still the schools and the community centers and the parks and all the amenities that a family would look for, but they can't afford a single-family home. And we want to encourage this activity. Okay, so we want to encourage this activity of densifying into these multiplex homes here in neighborhoods. So we'll exempt exempt you from the flipping tax if you do that. Paul, what do you think of that idea? Well, the idea came from my Instagram account, Property Tax Pro, and uh, I think it's fine. I mean, I mean that that's a perfect idea around densification, and and I'm glad that at least they adopted that after the fact because uh, it makes sense to me. Um, the tax yeah. generally doesn't make any sense. It's just going to delay homes coming to the marketplace that might otherwise come to the market. It's going to remove choices for families and what they want to do. And I just don't agree with more taxation. It's, it's so all mean, been a huge failure. So when you said this was your idea, so you say you posted this on your Instagram account and then the government copycatted it? Is that what Property happened? Tax Pro. Follow Property Tax Pro. You're going to get a lot of good ideas that a lot of the government programs or or, or, or platforms are starting to adopt. And I can tell you, the private sector thinks differently than the government does. And this isn't about government job growth. This is about making projects viable, getting density to the marketplace. And it's not around taxation. 
Okay, let's talk about the other, the bigger problem, I think, and that is the shortage of affordable homes, the housing shortage here. We are not building enough stuff. We've got a rapidly rising population. We're, we've got record high immigration. People love coming. We've got new Canadians coming to British Columbia all the, every day. And the housing starts in the province are going down. Like, this is, <laughs> the math is it's not a disaster, working here. Mike. Go ahead. Your Mike, this is, such, this is such bad news, Mike. I mean, we've... We we are incurring some of the biggest pent up demand ever, and you can look at this for for 50 years of the history of Vancouver real estate. When there's government intervention and new taxation, and and let's be honest and fair, that interest rates are a part of this. People step to the sidelines. Vendors don't sell, buyers don't buy, and pent up demand with the immigration levels is through the roof. And with this dwindling new supply coming on, this is like post 2008. We're going to have a, 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 a supply crisis unlike any other in two years from now. So all you're going to have is a bunch of taxes and nowhere for anybody to live. Talking about BC's new anti-flipping tax, a 20% tax on the profits if you flip a property in year one. Paul Sullivan is my guest. Lots of calls. Dave in Surrey. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. It's like uh, if you were to look at jewelry and people that wear necklaces, if they were to say you can't invest in gold, you can't buy bars because we want to wear necklaces, that's the way they're doing it. You know, investment is a part of real estate. It's inherent and intrinsic. So to get heavily involved like that and try to avoid flipping, it's ruining the game. Well, is it is it a game or is it is it a broken system it's where a, people can't find an affordable place is, to live? It, it's an investment industry, you know, so there's short-term and long-term investments, but investment is a critical component of real estate. It's how projects get done. Okay, okay, thank you, Dave. Well, what do you think of that, Paul? Because I guess this is what the government is saying. We can't start treating it like a game anymore. We can't treat it like it's in a, like a stock market. The real estate market is like a stock market. What do you think of that? Well, I said before, you Projects don't start without financing. Financing requires pre-sales. Investors have always been part of the pre-sale market. Um, You start tinkering with the market, you will affect supply, and this is going to have the negative result, right? Let's let's talk about you know a, a rent to own plan. Let's let's get the government to subsidize purchasers who don't really have the down payment so that they can buy a unit and get subsidized or financing guarantees from the government. Let's get them right. into the marketplace. Let's not tax people out of the market. Let's incentivize them into the market, right? Pete and Port Moody. Hi, Pete. Go ahead. Uh, if it's only a two-year wait and your plans are to buy a home and then flip it, you need at least two years for equity to build up to get any type of profit out of it to pay for your land transfer tax and so on. Plus, I mean, how difficult is it to rent a unit out for 25 months and then flip it? it okay, that's a good point. To me. That's a good point. Paul, what do you think of that? Well, you know, I sure, it does take time, but... Um, you know, people also make a lot of sacrifices and investments and and, and are trying to build equity and, and, you know, not going on those holidays and not doing the things that other people do because they're investing in their homes and creating value added. And so whether you can do it in one year or three years, stop tinkering with the market. Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. Go ahead. Uh, uh, first of all, excellent guest you have. And, I, and I've said this since I when I'll be blue in the face. Supply and demand. Supply and demand. Yeah. We want the very bureaucrats that screwed this system up to now fix it, 
That's like asking the people that built the leaky condos to come back and fix their mistake. Okay, Dev, thank you for that. Uh, Paul, if there's so much demand out there, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I just can't help myself. You know, it just reminds me of the hypocrisy we have going on with uh, these flipping shows you brought up. You know, home and garden TV uh, flipping shows funded by the federal government because they're con- Canadian content promoting flipping homes, and then they come along and bring in a you know federal anti-flipping tax and now a provincial. So yeah. no end of hypocrisy around these issues. That's for sure. Why are we not building enough housing? Like, why are the housing starts going down if there's so much demand? The, the well the demand's there but the the affordability is offside people can't afford it they got the stress test with the high interest rates they can't get in there as a result of that construction costs are through the roof i don't know how to solve that labor costs are high material costs are high we have the perfect trifecta of, of issues coming into a marketplace that's already undersupplied um and it's just going to get worse mike gary in vancouver hi gary go ahead gary north vancouver yeah north van go ahead gary yeah gary this uh the term flipping it's like speculation it's very misleading um there are people who purchase a place with intention of living in that area and find a, a different house they'd like to move to and want to purchase that uh, or move with their job they're not flippers. They're just people that are moving within two years. It's very misleading. Well, there are well, there are going to be exemptions. Like the government has said, if you have a change of, uh, I believe, getting a new job is one of the categories for an exemption. If you right. apply after and they approve it, mm. the, okay. anytime the government meddles in stuff, it becomes problematic. And they're meddling in this. They're meddling in people's lives. And I agree with Paul and on what he's saying. Okay, Gary. Okay. Thanks for the call. I squeeze one, squeeze in one more. John in New West. Hey, John, you got thirty seconds here. Go ahead. Yeah, great. This guy's nailed it right on. The government's doing everything they can to drive business out. I mean, when you have Sarah Kirby Young talking about the hotel shares, well, maybe we can have some buildings converted, a floating hotel. Really, the world's looking out at us thinking, are you kidding me? This is your economic drive, a floating hotel and converting some warehouses? The economy is going to the tank because this government's pushing investment out. Anyways, okay. there you are. Thank you, John, for the call. Paul, thank you for coming on today. It's my pleasure, Mike. Talk about gas prices now. I got the highest gas prices in North America, in Metro Vancouver. There's been some recent uh, turbulence in gas prices for sure. We've seen some spikes as well. Now, get set for gas prices to go even higher here now. We've got the BC carbon tax set to increase on April 1st. This is going to add to the pain at the pump here. Is it time to give people a break? You take a look at some other provinces. They brought in some gas tax relief in Alberta, Manitoba. Ontario. Some of those are temporary measures. Should we do the same thing here? Let's discuss it now with the leader of the opposition, Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Kevin, thank you for coming on. And thanks for having me, Mike. You're, you're welcome. What are you hearing from people on gas prices right now? Well, you know, I think it just it ties into the whole unaffordability of just living in BC. We are now, after seven years of this NDP government, the most unaffordable province in the entire country with the highest Housing prices in North America, the highest fuel prices in North America, the highest rents in Canada, some of the highest grocery inflationary pressures. And so, uh, you know, I think given that, this idea of the government and their budget, their big shiny object was eight bucks a month uh, in a hydro rebate. 
uh, that frankly they've acknowledged is going to be eliminated when they increase hydro rates next year. And so uh, rather than, you know, give a tiny little thing like that, I think they can do something substantive. And we've said, we've been saying now for uh, well over a year that we would eliminate the provincial fuel tax altogether. That's 14 and a half cents a litre savings for drivers, which, you know, for a typical driver is going to save them anywhere from 20 to 35 bucks every time they fill up the car. That's actual real savings. Okay, 14 and a half cents a litre right now. You would eliminate that immediately. And would that be a permanent thing or would that be temporary? Permanent. No permanent, permanent, Mike, because, yeah, I, I really feel very, very strongly about this because, you know, we have to go back and remember that when the NDP got elected in 2017, they took the revenue neutral carbon tax, which by law meant that all the revenues had to be returned to the public in the form of lower personal taxes, lower business taxes. And they changed the law and said, no, we're going to take that all into government now. Then they more than doubled the carbon tax rate. Now they plan to triple it uh, over the next six years. And, you know, quite yeah. frankly, uh, people are getting tired of it. Now, on April 1st, it goes up another 25%. And I yeah. just think that, you know, people are saying, hey, you know, like enough's enough. We, we can't afford this when we're trying to feed our kids and send them to, you know, uh, classes and dance and, and uh, buy medicines and all the rest of the things that people are struggling with right now. Yeah, I'm taking a look at the government schedule here of the carbon tax increases here going forward. And right now, a carbon tax on a litre of gasoline, 14.3 cents a litre on April 1st. So a little over one month from now goes to 17.6 cents a litre. So that is a significant percentage increase, more than three cents a litre. But uh, it, that's like, what What did you say it was? That's like a 25% 20, increase in the... 25%, wow. yeah. And, yeah. and uh, worse than that, it's, uh, you know, by 2030... It'll be, you know, pushing uh, to almost 38 cents a liter, 37 and a half cents a liter. And, and I, I'm telling yeah. you right now that, you know, people are struggling and it really upsets me. I, I run into people all the time. They're frustrated with that. They're, I, I ran into a woman uh, pumping her gas the other day that recognized me. And, uh, you know, she said, my little jalopy, she called it a jalopy, my little jalopy here. She goes, and they're telling me that I have to buy an electric vehicle. You know, by 2035, she goes, it's ridiculous. She goes, I can barely afford to fill up my jalopy here. And now they're telling me I've got to somehow find $70,000 to buy an electric vehicle. And, and this is the kind of frustration that's out there. Yeah. Would you get rid of that, too? The deadline to transition to 100% electric vehicle sales in BC? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because oh, not, not because I don't believe in electric vehicles. I think it's fantastic. We were always big supporters of the transition to electric vehicles. But, you know, there are a lot of low-income folks that can't afford $70,000 electric vehicles. And uh, I just think we, we have to be realistic here and recognize that, you know, BC has to be leaders for sure, but we can't put, you know, our own residents into the poverty house, uh, you know, trying to get to unrealistic um, uh, outcomes. Speaking of BC United leader Kevin Falcon and the plan, his plan to eliminate the provincial fuel tax, 14.5 cents a litre. How much money does that rev- raise for government right now, that fuel tax? Uh, just uh, it's around uh, my last time I checked, Mike, I think it was around eight hundred million dollars. Oh, eight hundred million. That's wrong. a I'd lot. Have to double check that. It's 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 a it, yeah. You know what, Mike? I, I got to double check the number now. I've got so many numbers in my head after going through budget week. But um, it's not isn't that going to isn't that going to punch a big hole in your budget? Well, we've already you know, this is what I find so frustrating. You know, we've we've got a government now that's doubled the debt. To 103 billion. They want to raise it by a further 64 percent over the next three years. Our, you know, interest payments alone, we're now having to spend two billion dollars a year. It's now one of the larger 
items of spending, more than transportation, more than many other ministries in the government. Um, they are already, you know, frankly, uh, throwing away a lot of money to, you know, uh, uh, to pay off uh, this, this massive debt they're running up. And I think that uh, what we need in government is the same thing the families are doing, tightening their belts a little bit, being responsible with government spending and focusing on results, not on just spending more money with, well, getting worse results. Let me play a clip here for you from Premier David Eby. He was asked about this idea of cutting gas taxes here to give people a break. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. We have seen other provinces where they've taken taxes, in Alberta specifically, they took their taxes off their gas prices, and the gas companies just increased their prices right back to where they were uh, before the taxes were taken off. So they gave up all of that revenue to pay for things like transit and public services, and they didn't do anything other than increase the profits of the oil companies. What do you say to him? Well, he's absolutely wrong. In fact, there was a, an independent analysis uh, done by the University of Calgary economist Trevor Tome uh, that showed, in fact, the tax relief was fully passed through both in 2022 and 2023. And uh, Professor Tome's analysis also showed that 98% of Albertans received a cost-of-living benefit from the suspension of that gas tax. You know, this, this is the problem with David Eby and the NDP. They've never met a tax they don't love, and they certainly never get rid of any taxes. But, you know, they've now added or increased 30, now 32, uh, new taxes since they've gotten into power. And, frankly, people are just reeling under the burden of, uh, you know, this government constantly so- taxing everything that moves. Okay, so if you were to immediately cut gas taxes by 14.5 cents a litre, as you've outlined here, you don't think the oil companies would just jack up the price of their gas at the pump by 14.5 cents? That's essentially what EB is alleging there. I guess he's alleging that these oil companies are colluding. And if you cut the gas taxes on the price of gas, they'll they'll just jack their prices up anyway. So the price will be the same. You're saying that won't happen. Yeah, that's not that's not the experience of what happened in uh, in Alberta, and it certainly wasn't the experience in Ontario. So yes, he will say that. Of course, he'll say that because he's going to look for any reason never to provide any tax relief to people. Uh, you know, but the NDP have played this game for a long time. They keep talking about collusion. Do you remember they they did a big inquiry into the gas companies, et cetera? And no, we're going to look into this and we're going to find all this collusion. They frankly didn't find a hill of beans. And the bottom line is that, you know, government is responsible in B.C. for us having the highest fuel prices in North America. It it doesn't just happen out of thin air. It happens because government continually is laying on new taxes, new costs, which all get passed along to the end user. There's a reason why they're the highest in North America. Okay. Um, If you were to eliminate this gas tax, you would be kissing off a lot of government revenues, as you just acknowledged. And I guess, where would you make that up? What kind of impact would that have on government services? Let me play a a clip here for you from Energy Minister Josie Osborne speaking in the legislature this week on this point. Let's listen. The opposition talks about cutting the gas taxes, but let's talk about what else they would cut if they were given the opportunity to be on this side of the house. They cut services for people. They would, they cut would, programs for people. They would cut services for people. They would cut programs for people. Wouldn't you be forced to cut? If you're going to cut your revenue, you've got to cut spending too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but Mike, please. I mean, this is the most reckless spending government I have ever seen. I mean, they literally have just announced an almost $8 billion projected deficit, the biggest in B.C. history, at a time when nobody can figure out why it's necessary that we're running up such a massive increase. 
Um, you look at just even their just their capital projects. Their Dawson Creek Hospital, sixty percent over budget. The Surrey Hospital, yeah. they've been promising and reannouncing for seven years now, sixty-seven percent over budget. They haven't even put a shovel in the ground yet. Williams Lake, sixty-eight percent over budget. Cowichan Hospital on the island, again, sixty-three percent over budget. I mean, these are people that you know, with the greatest of respect, haven't got a clue how to manage finances and manage money. And what we're going to do is be far more responsible in managing taxpayer dollars and make sure that those savings we harvest by doing things in a smart, intelligent way are then uh, used to give families a break. And that's what we're doing. But what would you, but what would you cut? What what would you cut though? Like if you're going, if you're saying they're overspending and they're, they're overtaxing, you're going to cut taxes and you got to cut spending. So what would you cut? Yeah, well, that's that's my whole point. So, for example, when we're doing capital projects, we wouldn't do them the way the NDP do them under their so-called misnamed community benefit agreements, which is really forced unionization saying only designated unions are allowed to bid on projects. And that drives up the cost of those projects and makes them far more expensive than they need to be. Though That's just one example of the kind of waste that's going on right now. They've increased the civil service in B.C. in the last seven years by 41 percent. And I just I I always ask the public every time I'm out, has anyone seen a 41 percent improvement in any service government delivers? But I guess I'm I guess I'm talking in crime. I guess I'm talking about government program spending like you heard in that clip. Like, would you cut government programs that are right now that people have right now and have access to government programs and services? Would you cut that? No, no, I I want to be clear. I don't think you need to. All you need to do is you need to focus the dollars so they're tied to outcomes, because right now what you have is a government that is massively increasing spending in healthcare, for example, and yet we're getting the worst results we've ever seen. We're sending cancer patients down to the U.S. We've got one in five people can't even access a family doctor. We've got the longest uh, walk-in clinic wait times in the entire country. I mean, these are really, really bad results. And when you're spending so much more money to get the worst results, that's a really bad sign. You talked about the massive deficits that are being racked up here in B.C. Would you reduce those deficits? Would you balance the budget? Well, of course, that's always been the history of our party. I mean, we left the NDP with a surplus budget, a multi-billion dollar surplus budget, a a AAA credit rating, uh, and some of the most massive infrastructure investment investment in in the history of the province of British Columbia. I oversaw a lot of that, the building of the Canada Line, the Evergreen Line, the Sea to Sky Highway, the William Bennett Bridge, the Portman Bridge, Pitt River Bridge. I mean, these were really, really important projects. The problem I face right now is I look around and say, okay, they more than doubled the debt. They're going to increase at 64% over the next three years. What can I point to? Like, what is... Where 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 can I point to something that I can actually see has been built? But, I look at the community of Surrey, and yeah. you know they've been promising a second hospital. They've been promising new schools, nothing in the budget. They've been promising, you know, all all these things, and all we're getting is worse worse outcomes. So, but you but you're saying you would eliminate an eight billion dollar deficit without cutting any program spending by government? I mean, come on now, like something's well, got to be cut. Well, no, like, what, yeah, look, Mike, you have to understand. I mean, this this is a government that is so recklessly spending um, that they are just spraying dollars everywhere and getting the worst outcomes possible. So what you have to do, like when I was back in the business world, you have to tie spending to outcomes. You hold people mm-hmm. responsible for those outcomes. You set key performance indicators to make sure that people are being held accountable for the results. And then you make sure you're driving good results. So, for example... Uh, you know, when you look at the, the horrific situation we have today where, you know, last year we saw the greatest number of overdose death rates in the history of the province of British Columbia, over 2,500 people. 
you might say to yourself, gee, if we keep doing more of the same, it's unlikely we're going to get different results. But what we see from this government is they will just double down and do more of the same. And what we're saying is, no, more of the same doesn't work. You have to do things differently. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. No problem, Mike. Thanks for having me. This operation successfully targeted the top of the fentanyl trafficking pyramid in British Columbia. Okay, that was the voice of Del Manic there, the chief of the Victoria Police Department, speaking back in 2020 about one of the biggest drug busts in BC history. This was a $30 million fentanyl trafficking bust. Police seized drugs, firearms, and cash in this major investigation involving multiple police departments. Let's go back again to 2020 here and listen to more of the Victoria Police Chief at that time. Have a listen to this. This operation successfully targeted the top of the fentanyl trafficking pyramid in British Columbia. The success of this operation is largely due to the effectiveness of agencies working together in a united front to prevent deadly and poisonous drugs like fentanyl from hitting our streets. Okay, that was then, that was back in 2020. Three alleged drug traffickers were charged at that time. And it is now all unraveled. The charges have been stayed after prosecutors learned about alleged police misconduct during this investigation. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Paul Schachter. Paul is a lawyer and a former member of the Victoria Police Board. He is calling for an independent investigation of what happened here. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Paul, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, this has been sort of a shocking story to watch as as this unfolds here. I mean, this was such a massive, massive drug bust here. $30 million. We're talking fentanyl, this deadly drug that has killed so many people on the streets of BC. And man, the police were just, they were just so happy and so proud about this bust back then. And the whole thing has come un, unraveled here. Let's listen quickly to the chief here. After these charges were stayed here, these allegations of misconduct, here he is apologizing. Then I want to get your thoughts on this. Here's Del Manic. Now it's clear that there were several points of failure in our processes. And I apologize for our contribution to this outcome. Okay, let's talk about this now, Paul, and your concerns here. Can you tell me, first of all, what, went, what was your reaction when you heard that this, this, tra- this fentanyl trafficking case that was codenamed Project Juliet, that it had collapsed? What did you think of that? Well, it, it was a real shock. I mean, the Victoria Police Department had made such a big public display of how they were protecting the community right after the, the bust. And, and my feeling was that any dent in the deadly toxic drug trade would help our community. But when the case mm-hmm. crashed, I felt it was really important for accountability that the public know what went wrong. I mean, the residents of Victoria pay over $70 million for police protection. Justice Catherine Murray found that various police officers had lied and deceived the Crown and the court. This yeah. clearly wasn't just an individual failing, but a problem in the management and direction of the department. And, and I thought that we had to dig deeper into that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the, the courts uh, have disclosed that the misconduct allegations here were linked to one of the Victoria police officers on the case at that time. His name is Rob Ferris. 
And the court record stated that back in 2020, when police began this fentanyl investigation, Ferris was involved, but he himself was under investigation by the RCMP for breach of trust and obstruction of justice. And this is how it all fell apart here. And these the people who are accused here walked away. What are your, Paul, what are your concerns here about the way this was handled? Well, you know, the, the court disclosures raised a bunch of, of serious questions. Why did Vic PD close the investigation that was going on since early May and then open up a new one in late June 2020 with the same people except for Constable Ferris or former Constable Ferris and the same the inform information interception warrants, uh, if not with the intent to falsely contend that Ferris was not involved? And, yeah. you know, it doesn't make any sense that they would stop an investigation and, and start a new one with exactly the same people, exactly the same warrants, unless there was something behind it. Yeah, and so. it really is shocking. And what we've learned here now is that a few days after this, this fellow was a, this police officer was eventually arrested. There were no charges brought, ever brought against him, but he was arrested. And at that time, the Victoria Police Department um, just continued the investigation with a new file number. The, the court documents that have come out uh, allege that there was an attempt to conceal the, the involvement of this police officer, and that's how it's all unraveled here. I wonder if there had been a way to somehow rescue this investigation, Paul, for your thoughts. Let's listen to Chris Lewis here, uh, the former commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police, who's been commenting on this, saying, Maybe what the Vic Victoria Police Department should have done after this police officer got in trouble, they should have started started all over with new police officers on this investigation. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts. Well, I think it was a bit of a crapshoot on the decision-making of Victoria PD to leave that officer on. From an outsider looking in, it would have been very uh, easy, I think, to replace everybody. Start from scratch. Yeah, do you think that's what that could have rescued this investigation? Once this officer was discovered to be under investigation himself, maybe they should have brought in new officers and started over. Was that would that, would that have been possible? Uh, well, Mike, I can't hold myself out as an expert in in those type of procedures, but it seems to me yeah. there could have been a that there could have been a completely new investigation with a new team and new warrants, or they could have given the prosecutors a situation and developed a strategy that complied with the with the law. The one thing they should not have done is continue the original investigation and falsify when it started and who was involved. That's what seems to have sunk the ship. Yeah, for sure. Speaking to Paul Schachter, former member of the Victoria Police Board, we're talking about the collapse of this $30 million fentanyl trafficking case in Victoria, three accused here of what the charges have been stated against three people here. So let's listen to the chief again, Paul, for your thoughts. And here is Victoria Police Chief. Del Manic saying, okay, when they were became aware that this one police officer was under investigation himself by the RCMP, they said they didn't want to jeopardize this, this fentanyl investigation, so they, they continued on here. They made decisions to continue on. Let's listen to the chief's explanation here, then I'll get your thoughts. Once we had an idea that perhaps a criminal investigation needed to be conducted against Constable Ferris, uh, we had to, we needed to gather further evidence. In order to do that, uh, our officers minimized as best as possible to the impact that he was going to have on this investigation, and they did a very good job of that. Uh, 
So it's just it's disappointing of the outcome, but I, I think for that particular decision, we needed uh, more evidence and we needed to continue on and, and gather further information regarding Constable Ferris's activities. Okay, this is so weird, the, the way this unfolded right. here, that they, they decided to carry on and minimize the role of this officer who was under investigation himself. This uh, obviously appears to have been a, a catastrophic error here in, in hindsight. Paul, l let's talk about your calls for an investigation. What, do you, what kind of answers do you think the public needs, needs here? Well, you know, I, my call really is for an independent investigation. Um, you know, what uh, Chief Mannix said there doesn't really make too much sense to me when you look at what actually happened. The, so the chief said he thought that the decision to keep Constable Ferris on this big drug bust was right so as not to tip him off he was investigated. But yeah. then they cut him out of the investigation and tried to hide it because they knew it would undermine the arrests. So was the decision to keep Ferris on right or was it wrong? If it was right, why change it and then try to hide it? So, it, you know, just frankly doesn't make too much sense. I, I think we need to know um, really at what levels the these decisions were made. The, you know, the, the team commander of Project Juliet uh, was a sergeant. Uh, the um, above the sergeant are inspectors and then there are deputy chiefs and then the chief himself it doesn't seem to me logical that a strategy that was carried out was made at the lowest level so i think the public needs to know what levels were involved i think the public needs to know if the chain of command was followed where did it break down if it wasn't followed why wasn't it followed somebody in management should have reviewed these decisions and and been involved and 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 been honest with the court and the crown yeah um, so yeah, the, it's, um, it's, it, it, what do you what do you yeah, think about rob rob ferris this officer here who's been identified here in this has since made public comments saying that now he was never charged he retired as a police officer but he has said that the, the collapse of this case was not his fault and he now feels like he's being used as a scapegoat for the mistakes of others. What do you think of that? Well, let's be clear. Constable Ferris was charged with being a bad actor whose conduct was corrupt and tainted the investigation. He resigned rather than dispute those charges. Okay. He was the reason for the problem, but not the cause of the fiasco. Project Juliet collapsed because Vic PD, not Constable Ferris, lied and deceived the Crown and the judiciary. So I, I don't think he's blameless. I, I think he's... Uh, trying to make himself out as as a good guy well i don't think he is um but he wasn't the reason that this um uh, this whole investigation and this whole prosecution went south it was because of bad decisions that seemed to have been made by vic pd do you think this has this has obviously been an embarrassing for the victoria police department but do you think it's worse than that like does this does the, the the collapse of this case on such a scale, does that undermine public confidence in the police? I do believe there is a crisis of integrity within the department. You know, if department leadership can't ensure that investigations are done following the law and without lies and deception, then how can the public be sure that those who are arrested and prosecuted are guilty rather than just caught in a, up in a web of police fabrication? How can we be sure that 
other parts of the investigation are not being illegally manipulated. I, I support the officers doing the day-to-day -day work. Uh, you know, really fully support them. Their their job is yeah. already hard enough. It's really important that the officers on the street that they have the trust of the community. That's what keeps them safe. The failure of leadership to safeguard integrity reflects badly on all of the officers. That makes their job harder and puts them more at risk. So I do think there is, this is more than just an embarrassment. This is something that needs to be corrected. Yeah, and just lastly, you have called for an independent investigation here. Paul, what is the status of that? Uh, I have been told that the um, complaint is going to the local police board's governance committee um, in early March, and then it should be considered by the full board as to what to do in at their um, March meeting, which I think is around March 19th. Um, I'm hoping that they do uh, really uh, invoke a completely in independent investigation, it would be a travesty to refer this back to Chief Maddock and let him um, put spin on the investigation. You know, the uh, Canadian Bar Association has best practices on how to conduct an internal investigation. And the best practices says that no director, officer, employer, agent whose conduct is the subject of the investigation should participate in the investigation except as a witness. Management especially managers of a department that is subject of the allegation, should not oversee the internal investigation and should recuse themselves from any of its reporting. So I'm hoping that the local police board uh, understands this and, and follows um, the best practices and does call for an independent investigation. And, and I'm sure that Minister Farnworth and the police services would back them up on that. Okay, well, we're following it closely here, to say the least. Thank you very much for coming on to discuss it today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.